Thank you to the song leaders, John Owen and the sisters. Where's all the brothers this morning? From the ends of the earth. That's Let's Go. It's good to worship God together, and it was great to celebrate Scott uh, being 50 this week. So wherever you are, Scott, we love you. Our family loves you. The church loves you. It was the conversations with Scott six years ago that ended up resulting in my family moving across the world to come. So thank you, bro. We're, we, love, we love you and your family. We love New Zealand. Happy 50th. It's also great to have the Shirelys here from Australia. Thank you for sharing the communion. That was awesome. And what a cool, what a cool connection that he was here that many years ago helping out the church and meeting people who are still here today. That's very inspiring. And we have a crew visiting from the Hong Kong church. That's the word that came to my ear. So if you could, if you could stand, whoever you are, we'd like to welcome you. Fantastic. Thank, thank you for being here, and we hope you're encouraged. And also, last week, we did a collection for Hope Worldwide. Hope is our benevolent arm in the church, and it was uh, to raise funds for programs in Papua New Guinea. And as a church in Auckland, we collected $1,500, which is very cool. And as a spa region, we collected close to twenty-five thousand dollars. So that's very exciting. All of that will go to programs in Papua New Guinea. If you wanted to give but didn't get a chance, you can still do that online. Richard's going to send away our payment at the end of the week. And lastly, we have a brother that's visiting for one year. That's, that's a long visit. But he's from our sister church in San Antonio, Texas. So if you could stand up, Dalton, we'd like to welcome you, bro. Good to have you here. Good to have another American. America. Although, I'm Kiwi now. And you will be too, bro. So, in life, there's a lot of sources of joy or encouragement, aren't there? If you've ever paid off a bill or a debt, you feel encouraged. You feel joy. Until you get another bill. And then you feel discouragement. When I get a possession, or you get a possession, I feel like, oh, this is cool. I get some new AirPods that are Bluetooth, and I feel encouraged. Until my dog eats one of my AirPods. And then I feel discouragement and rage. (laughs) When I play sport, and I actually do well occasionally. And I feel good about, hey, I had a good game in sport and I kind of strut around a little swagger. And then I use the face app and I see what I'm going to look like in 40 years. And I feel a little bit of discouragement. Although I'm not sure that thing is completely accurate. Duncan and I were talking about it last night. He has a theory because when you look at the younger version, it doesn't look quite like you. And when you look at the older version, you're like, whoa, I hope that's not me. But if the younger one doesn't work, then maybe the the older one doesn't work as well. That's my hope, and that's my encouragement. All of these different things, we realize that joy and encouragement can be fluctuating, right? It's very limited. But what if there was a more permanent way to always be joyful and always be encouraged? 
And the Bible has a solution for that matter, which we'll find this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're visiting with us, or if you're just checking out Christianity in general, we hope that this morning you really see the Bible has answers for people who are looking for long-term joy and encouragement. Let's pray and then we'll read 2 Corinthians chapter 7 together. God, we're, we are so grateful to worship you and to come before you and take communion, to sing, enjoy fellowship. And this, this is the reason why we gather. We are here to stand in awe of the supreme creator of the cosmos, of everything. And as we hear your words, God, I pray that your spirit works with our minds and our hearts uh, on an individual level and as a church level so that we all really understand what you would say to us and that we could practice it. And then we could take it to a lost world and help them be full of joy and full of encouragement as well. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll be starting in verse 2 and read to the end of the chapter. Let's read together in verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. That's an extreme amount of affection. I will live with you and I will die with you. In verse 4, I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia... We had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you're made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So, even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all of this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we are especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit was refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you and you have not embarrassed me. 
But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for all of you is greater when he remembers that you all were obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. And so all of this is the middle of Paul reconciling or attempting to reconcile his relationship with the church in Corinth. If none of that makes sense to you, just imagine Paul and just another person, or you and another person that have had frank words together, and it's pulled back against each other, and now one of you is trying to desperately reconnect. That's essentially what's happening with Paul and the church in Corinth. And so in verse 2 and 3, he says, we've wronged no one, corrupted no one, exploited no one. It would be different if Paul had done those things. Certainly, they would have reason to pull back, be suspicious, be hesitant. But he says, we haven't done any of that, so make room for us. Let's reconnect. Let's reconcile. Because as you read Paul in this letter, you see the way they react to Paul is the way they respond to the gospel. It's like linked up. Paul, an apostle of Jesus, when he comes and brings the gospel, the way they act and react to Paul is the way they act and react to the gospel. But in, included in all of this, we see a pretty permanent source of, source of joy and encouragement. In this passage, we can get encouragement and joy from people, from repentance, and when others encourage others. Let's look at this first idea if we get joy and encouragement from people. Look at verse 4. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles. Troubles there in the language is a present thing. It's not like they've ended. They're ongoing. But in all my troubles, my joy knows no bounds. Unlimited. Overflowing. Hyperbolic is the word in the Greek. It's like, it's too much. It's hyperbole. For verse 5, when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. We were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So all of this together, Paul had left Corinth. He had went for a brief stay and had some words with them. Didn't go well. So he goes to Macedonia. And while he's there, he says, man, I was, had no rest. I was harassed. That word is, is, word is used to describe the action of grapes being pressed together to make wine. He's under tremendous pressure. Conflicts within, fears within, all of this kind of stuff. And he feels it. It's weighing him down. Corinth isn't the only church Paul looks after. There are several. And so this is one of many. But he feels the weight of all of this. He's conflicted. And when he gets to Corinth, he says, we, we, we didn't have any rest. We were harassed and all of this stuff happened. And in order for God to comfort Paul, he didn't change the situation. He just sent a person. And you would think, man, we were harassed at every turn and conflicted, and then God obliterated all of the problems. And I was so fired up. No, we had troubles, harassed, blah, blah, blah. We were so fired up. My joy is limitless because of you. 
And I was so fired up to see Titus. I'm so joyful. Despite what's going on in my circumstances. Why? Because of people. Especially believers. Especially disciples. People who follow Jesus. There's a tremendous long-term joy when you and I are connected to one another. There's a direct connection. In this passage, and it's a theme in the scripture, there's a direct connection between my relationship with you and my joy. Your relationship with me and your joy. It's a source of long-term joy. When we're connected to people, when we're connected to the fellowship, and especially when we're doing well. When we're not doing well, maybe not as much of a joy, but much a not doing well disciple than a doing well non-disciple. Right? And so there's this idea that Paul says, man, we're stressed and conflicted, but I was so joyful because of you. There's a similar phenomenon in sport where people go up and down, right? When a team wins or loses. There was an article one time in the New Zealand Herald that said 75% of New Zealanders believe it's important, but most important for the All Blacks to win. And I'm probably included in that 75%. Because when they win, there's a quote that said, basically our self-esteem gets a boost from us psychologically identifying with the team. When they win, I'm so fired up. And when they draw, I'm like, oh my goodness. I felt almost borderline depressed last night. Why are you shaking your hand, Timothy? My joy knows no limits, bro. There's a connection, right? We connect it to these things where if things are going well, we feel good. If things are not going well, we feel bad. It's true in sport. It's true in life, with your job, with your family. Paul has experienced all of that, but he says, my joy knows no limits because of you. Not because of my success or my circumstances, because of you. Now, now, what does this mean for our everyday lives, especially in the fellowship? How joyful are you because of your brothers and sisters? You know what? Last week, a brother pulled me aside. Well, he didn't pull me aside, but we were, we were crossing paths. I said, bro, how are you? He says, I'm so happy. And I said, well, tell me why. And if you hear Alex and Jacqueline's story... Of how God intervened in their work, in their visa. It was flat out overflowing. We were standing there in the hallway waiting to get our kids. And if you've ever been in that hallway, the door slams really loud. It's like, bam, bam. But I was just like tuned in. I could hear the slam of the door, but I was focused on what he was saying. He was just, I'm so happy. God has answered my prayer. I want to tell people about it. I want to let the church know. And it flat built my faith. And if you don't know their story, you got to hear it. So it doesn't matter what could be going on. Because of you, I felt joy. I felt encouragement. And it can impact you too. And, and, somebody can, and, and you can impact someone else. The deal is, if you're not experiencing joy in the fellowship, you're just flat out selfish. That's, there's no other conclusion. You're too consumed with your own world. You have this shrieking bubble. You have the impression that your situation is the most unique, the most pressing. It's flat out not. Someone else is times 10 
of what you're going through. And when you hear how God intervenes, it connects you to a source of joy and it connects you to encouragement. Or the better question is, do you even know how your brothers and sisters are doing? Do you even know why they're happy? What's going on in their lives? That's what Paul says. We're connected to these people. It doesn't matter the circumstances. I'm fired up because of you. That's what he says to the church in Thessalonica. Chapter 2, verse 19. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when He comes? What's it all for? What are we going to be excited for when Jesus comes back? Is it not you? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. If you're not a Christian and you want long-term joy, you need to be connected to the body of Christ. Because that's what gives you long-term joy. Amen? Amen. Secondly, repentance gives you joy as well. Verse 8 through 13. Verse 8, even if I caused you sorrow, don't regret it. He sounds kind of manic, but I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt. But he's saying, "I, I knew that if I spoke frankly, you'd react. And I knew that it would be short term, but I'm so fired up that you passed all that and now you're actually repenting. Verse 9, I'm happy not because you're made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended and were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance. It leads to salvation. Leaves no regret. Worldly sorrow brings death. And then he describes it on to verse 12, but look at verse 13. By all of this, we are encouraged. By your repentance. And what do they need to repent of? Well, in the church in Corinth, there was one person who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. The church thought we shouldn't kick him out because we're exercising love. And Paul says, no, you need to repent and ask him to leave the fellowship because he's not holding to the standard of following Jesus. That's one thing they needed to repent of. Also, their relationship with Paul. They pulled back. They saw Paul and they said, No, we don't think you're the real deal. We think you're too harsh. Or look at your life. It's all over the place and full of struggle. And They pulled back. Paul said, No, you've got to make room for us. How you react to us is how you react to the gospel. But in both cases, Paul says, Look, man, I was was kind of, ah, for a second. But now I'm so excited. I'm encouraged. You repented. Repentance brings encouragement. Repentance brings joy. But it's helpful to understand kind of the mechanics or what repentance is. It is not feeling sorry. The Bible says that, you know, but your sorrow led you to repentance. Don't confuse the two. But it is a word that if you're not familiar with, helps us understand what repentance is and ought to look like from the Bible. Not from your mainstream opinion or view. Metanoia. Meta meaning after. In Greek, noia meaning mind, after mind. When you see something, it shifts the way you think. That is repentance. When your mind shifts, when your mind changes, and you have an after mentality, your behavior initially starts to change as well. So if we apply this idea to Corinth, initially, the way they thought was, we're really loving, we're not going to kick this guy out of church. And their action, nothing. No action. But when they repent, they say, wow, we got to hold up the high standard. It's actually loving to discipline him in hopes 
that he returns. And the action, they did ask him to leave, and then they welcome him back. With Paul, initially, their mindset was, how can his life be a true example of Jesus if he's always getting beaten or in prison or being dragged out of the city or driven out of the city or he's always hungry or he's always harassed? Where's the victory? Surely that's not genuine apostleship. And the action, because of their mind, they pull away. When they repent, they see, actually, he's a model of discipleship. His life parallels the ministry of Jesus. And the action, they long to be reconnected. And Paul is encouraged by all of this. How do you know when people are repenting? Verse 8 through 11 gives us some indicators. Verse 8 says, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a long time. (laughs) But only for a little while. When you linger and you loathe and you wallow in self-pity, that's just flat worldly sorrow. When you let the Spirit sufficiently convict you to the core of who you are, it stings for a little while, but it brings about repentance. And that's awesome. In verse 9, when you're focused on God, not on people, I see that we hurt you, but you became sorrowful. You were not made, we became sorrowful as God intended and were not harmed by us. When you repent it and someone speaks truth to you, initially you may think, oh, that was harsh. But then you see the bigger picture, you see God, and you don't even remember what that person said. But if you're not repentant, you only think about what that person said. And then it continues on, verse 10 through 11. We won't go through all of it, but earnestness. That's a speed. When people are repentant, they're not waiting around for someone to tell them what to do. They're doing it. There's a speed to it. There's an eagerness to clear yourself. That means you're confessing. You're talking about what's going on. Not having to be interrogated about what's going on. Indignation. There's an engine. You're angry that you've upset God and you've offended God. Not that you got caught. There's alarm, it sends you into action. All of this, readiness to see justice done. I'm willing to own up to my mistakes. We weren't loving, we didn't think you were the apostle, we thought you should be. Man, we blew it, but we love you, man. This is how it all works. And all of it was visible. Titus comes back and says, hey Paul, guess what man? The church is fired up. They've repented. That guy's back in church. They really see things clear. They want to be connected with you. It's very evident. It's very visible. Verse 13, I'm so encouraged because of repentance. Now in contrast though, you have our boy Jonah. Good old Jonah goes to Nineveh. God says, go preach. I want those people to change. He does eventually. And They change. And at the end of the book of Jonah, when God saw that they, meaning Nineveh, did, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But Jonah seemed, to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry, and he goes under this little fig tree and flat has a pity party. And right after that, he says... This is just what I thought. Because you're so merciful and compassionate, you would turn, and I'm ready to die because you let them live. Gosh, what a pathetic. But I'm like that. 
Have you ever, have you, you know, when you have these conflicts in relation, oh man, that brother or sister just needs to get what's coming to them. <laughs> and then they start to change, you're like, man, I've really changed. God hasn't really punished them quite enough yet. <laughs> just, just punish them a little more so they really get it. That's Jonah. There's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. That wants people to burn. (laughs) And when they turn around, like, skeptical, waiting. Have they really changed? They haven't really changed. That's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. But it should encourage you when people repent. Why? The Bible says when one sinner repents, the angels are rejoicing. It's very angelic. Man, praise God, we've had people get restored. That's awesome. Praise God, we've had people get baptized. That's awesome. There's repentance there. As we continue on in our fellowship, we'll mess up with each other. We'll have conflict. We'll have disagreement. And we'll be at odds. But we'll repent and we'll be encouraged by it. We'll be encouraged by it. Our own repentance brings refreshment as well. That's what Acts chapter 3, 19 says. Repent. Repent. Repent so that you can be, receive for times of refreshing. As, as Darren was sharing and, and Marianne in the, in the communion, it's not the hard times, it's the glorious times that you think, wow, this is really awesome. And they're always connected to some kind of repentance. Those are the standout pivot points in my spiritual life. When I repented from impurity, man, I felt like, ah, so refreshed. So fired up. The Bible has plenty of passages connecting how we're doing to how our eyes look. You can see in the fellowship people have lost joy. Because you can see it in their eyes. It's all in the Proverbs and Psalms. You look at people and they're full of light. They're full of life. It's in their eyes. They're full of bitterness. They're full of discouragement. It's in their eyes. There's a lack of repentance there. There's a lack of repentance because that brings joy, that brings encouragement. If you're a member of our fellowship and you haven't felt that, then you can when you repent or when someone else does. If you're not, if you know nothing about Christianity, repentance brings joy. Know that. And thirdly, we get encouragement and joy when others encourage others. All right? What does that mean? Look at verse 13. By this, we're all encouraged. We talked about that. I'm so excited you repented. And that's awesome. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. Refreshed, He's recharged. He's, he's got some rest because he goes to Corinth and he gets charged up. And Paul's excited because, wow, now Corinth is repenting and now they're encouraging Titus. And here comes Titus and Titus is encouraging me. It's, it's, a, it's a cycle of encouragement and joy. And he's doubly encouraged. You know, we were, we were encouraged, but then in addition to our encouragement, we were more encouraged. <laughs> it's like, but it, that's how you stay long-term par- permanently joyful when you're connected to people and you see people grow and then those people start giving to other people. And that's what brings us joy. That's what brings us encouragement. A cycle of ongoing encouragement. It should be a maturing process. When you become 
you know, when you're born, you eventually grow up to become a, a standing man, or, you know, hopefully you do. And, but then at that point in society, you start to be able to give back to others. You get a job, amen, and you start to, you know, be able to give back. And, but that's kind of the cycle. That's an expectation even in, in, in culture and in social circles. But it's even more so spiritually. You know, you become a Christian, you kind of fumble away around, you don't, you know, especially if you have non-Christian background, how many books are there in the Bible, and why do we stand up and sing, and why do we sit down, and why, what's, you're kind of learning the ropes, and then you start to get a couple grapple on things, and, and then you start to see the bigger picture, and then you start to develop your own convictions, and then you start to grow, and then you start to help someone else. And when, and when I see that, and when you see that, and you see that process... It brings joy and it brings encouragement when someone else is starting to encourage other people. And often, especially with Corinth, what were they accused of in 1 Corinthians? Being infants. They weren't maturing and growing. They weren't encouraging others. They just stayed stuck. I'm a Christian now. I'm in my Christian bubble. And you're in your Christian bubble. But it's much more exciting and livening when people are growing and encouraging other people. If you think about it, that's, that's kind of the fabric of our church. That's, that's the infrastructure of our church. People grow spiritually and then they start to give. And then those people start to grow and they start to give. And on and on and on and on. It starts where? Kids ministry. Right? You know, the kids' workers are helping the kids and, and they're teaching the kids about the Bible and all kind of great stuff and then they eventually grow up and, and they go into the preteens. And, but you know what? Some people just don't want to volunteer for kids' ministry. Why? Why? That's when you start to gain encouragement. You be part of that cycle. Or you see, man, these kids are growing up. And if, if you've been in this church for a while, you see like, you know, the... Um, Otis and Cole and all these guys and Koopa. And, man, these guys are like studs. <laughs> they are, man. And I was like, that's what I want to revert to in the face app. I'm like, I want to look like these guys. <laughs> but the point is, the kids' ministry needs people to volunteer. That's where it begins. If, if you've been asked and you've made an excuse without really thinking through it, you need to repent. We need help. That's where it begins. And then it goes on to the preteen workers where, where they're, you know, people working in the preteens, they're, they're starting to help the preteens understand their character a little bit. And they're starting to develop relationships with them. And thank God for all of our preteen workers and all those that have laid the groundwork. And then they come into the teens. And then they start to, you know, their voice starts to, you know, go up and down. And, and, uh, and all that kind of stuff starts to happen. <laughs> Preach it, and then, and then they go. Then they go into the uni, then they go into the singles, and then they get married, and then Tyson and Chloe come back and start leading the teens. Right? Is not Chloe an example of that? Going up through the church, goes to the university, comes to the scene. Now she's come back, starting the process all over. I'm so encouraged by that. I'm so encouraged by that. Change. Who? Okay, that's too much information for me. But that's what it's like. It, it's a cycle. And, and, and we need to look with a bigger picture and say, how do I want joy? I want others to learn to give to other people. 
so that our joy abounds. And when we set our sights on Wellington and other cities in New Zealand and throughout the Pacific Islands, we have to be a church that matures and helps other people give to others. And that's how the cycle works. That's how we mature. That's how we get joy and encouragement. If you're not a Christian, the only way you can get long-term joy and encouragement is through God and His body. You'll be momentarily fired up when your sports team wins, when you look good on FaceApp, and your possessions are all good. But the moment that fades, discouragement settles in. If you're a Christian, that's the very moment joy kicks in. Because of people. Let's invest in our relationships. That's where joy comes from. Let's continue to repent and call others to repentance. Let's all be a part of this maturing cycle. Maturing cycle to help other people grow and give to others. And then we will become a community whose joy knows no bounds. Amen. Amen.